pulled over by police officers in Arkansas during our 1975 U.S. tour, and a standoff ensues. Why did we stop at the Fordyce restaurant in Fordyce, Arkansas for lunch on Independence Day weekend? On any day? Despite everything I knew from ten years of driving through the Bible Belt. Tiny town of Fordyce, rolling stones on the police menu across the United States, Every copper wanted to bust us by any means available, to get promoted and patriotically rid America of these little fairy Englishmen. It was 1975, a time of brutality and confrontation. Open season on the Stones had been declared since our last tour, the Tour of 72, known as the STP. The State Department had noted riots, true. Civil disobedience, also true. Illicit sex, whatever that is and violence across the United States. All the fault of us, mere minstrels. We had been inciting youth to rebellion. We were corrupting America, and they had ruled never to let us travel in the United States again. It had become, in the time of Nixon, a serious political matter. He had personally deployed his dogs and dirty tricks against John Lennon, who he thought might cost him an election. We, in turn, they told our lawyer officially, were the most dangerous rock-and-roll band in the world. In previous days, our great lawyer, Bill Carter, had single-handedly slipped us out of major confrontations devised and sprung by the police forces of Memphis and San Antonio, and now Fordyce, small town of 3,500, whose high school emblem was some weird red bug, might be the one to take the prize. Carter had warned us not to drive through Arkansas at all, and certainly never to stray from the interstate. He pointed out that the state of Arkansas had recently tried to draw up legislation to outlaw rock and roll. Love to see the wording of the statute. Where there be loudly and insistently four beats to the bar. And here we were driving back roads in a brand new yellow Chevrolet Impala. In the whole of the United States, there was perhaps no sillier place to stop with a car loaded with drugs a conservative, redneck southern community not happy to welcome different-looking strangers. In the car with me were Ronnie Wood, Freddie Sessler, an incredible character, my friend and almost a father to me, who will have many parts in this story, and Jim Callaghan, the head of our security for many years. We were driving the 400 miles from Memphis to Dallas, where we had our next gig the following day at the Cotton Bowl. Jim Dickinson, the southern boy who played piano on Wild Horses, had told us that the Texarkana landscape was worth the car ride, and we were planed out. We'd had a scary flight from Washington to Memphis, dropping suddenly many thousands of feet, with much sobbing and screaming. The photographer Annie Leibowitz hitting her head on the roof, and the passengers kissing the tarmac when we landed. I was seen going to the back of the plane and consuming substances with more than usual dedication, as we tossed about the skies, not wanting to waste. So we drove, and Ronnie and I had been particularly stupid. We pulled into this roadhouse called the Fordyce, where we sat down and ordered, and then Ronnie and I went to the John. You know, just start me up. We got high. We didn't fancy the clientele out there or the food, and so we hung in the John, laughing and carrying on. We sat there for forty minutes, and you don't do that down there. Not then. That's what excited and exacerbated the situation. And the staff called the cops. As we pulled out, 
There was this black car parked on the side. No number plate. And the minute we took off, 20 yards down the road, we get sirens and the little blinking light, and there they are with shotguns in our faces. I had a denim cap with all these pockets in it that were filled with dope. Everything was filled with dope. In the car doors themselves, all you had to do was pop the panels, and there were plastic bags full of coke and grass, peyote and mescaline. Oh my God, how are we going to get out of this? It was the worst time to get busted. It was a miracle we had been allowed into the States at all for this tour. Our visas hung on a thread of conditions, as every police force in the big cities also knew, and had been fixed by Bill Carter with very hard, long-distance footwork with the State Department and the Immigration Service over the previous two years. It was obviously condition zero that we weren't arrested for possession of narcotics, and Carter was responsible for guaranteeing... Chapter 5 the Stones' first tour of the USA, meeting Bobby Keys at the San Antonio State Fair, Chess Records, Chicago. I hook up with a future Ronnie Spector and go to the Apollo in Harlem. Fleet Street and Andrew Oldham provide our new popular image, long-haired, obnoxious, and dirty. Mick and I write a song we can give the Stones. We go to L.A. and record with Jack Nietzsche at RCA. I write satisfaction in my sleep, and we have our first number one. Alan Klein becomes our manager. Linda Keith breaks my heart. I buy my country house, Redlands. Brian begins to melt down and meets Anita Pallenberg. The first time the Stones went to America... We felt we'd died and gone to heaven. It was the summer of 64. Everybody had their own little thing about America. Charlie would go down to the Metropole when it was still swinging and see Eddie Condon. First thing I did was visit Colony Records and buy every Lenny Bruce album I could find. Yeah, I was amazed by how old-fashioned and European New York seemed. Quite different to what I'd imagined. Bellboys, Major D's, all that sort of thing. Unnecessary fluff and very unexpected. It was as if somebody had said these are the rules of 1920 and it hadn't changed a bit since. And on the other hand, it was the fastest moving modern place you could be. And the radio. You couldn't believe it after England. Being there at a time of a real musical explosion... Sitting in a car with the radio on was beyond heaven. You could turn the channels and get ten country stations, five black stations, and if you were traveling the country and they faded out, you just turn the dial again, and there was another great song. Black music was exploding. It was a powerhouse. At Motown, they had a factory, but without turning out automatons. We lived off Motown on the road, just waiting for the next four tops or the next temptations. Motown was our food, on the road and off. Listening to car radios through a thousand miles to get to the next gig. That was the beauty of America. We used to dream of it before we got there. I knew Lenny Bruce might not be every American's sense of humor, but I thought from there I could get a thread to the secrets of the culture. 
He was my entree into American satire. Lenny was the man, the sick humour of Lenny Bruce. I'd taken him in long before I got to America, so I was well prepared when on the Ed Sullivan show Mick wasn't allowed to sing Let's Spend the Night Together. We had to sing Let's Spend Some Time Together. Talk about shades and nuances. What does that mean? Especially the CBS. A night is not allowed? Unbelievable. It used to make us laugh. It's pure Lenny Bruce. Titty is a dirty word? What's dirty? The word or the titty? Andrew and I walked into the Brill Building, the tin pan alley of U.S. song, to try and see the great Jerry Lieber. But Jerry Lieber wouldn't see us. Someone recognized us and took us in and played us all these songs. And we walked out with Down Home Girl by Lieber and Butler, a great funk song that we recorded in November of 1964. Looking for the deck offices in New York on one of our ventures, we ended up in a motel on 26th and 10th with a drunken Irishman called Walt McGuire, a crew-cut guy who looked as if he'd just gone out of the American Navy. This was the head of the U.S. Decker office. And we suddenly realized that Great Decker Record Company was actually some warehouse in New York. It was a car trick. Oh, yes, we have big offices in New York. And it was down on the docks on the West Side Highway. We were listening to chick songs, doo-wop, uptown soul. The Marvelettes, the Crystals, the Chiffons, the Chantelles, all of this stuff coming in our ears, and we're loving it. And the Ronettes, the hottest girl. Chapter 11, in which I meet Patty Hansen and fall in love. I survive a disastrous first meeting with her parents. Grief is brewing with Mick. I fight with Ronnie Wood and dig out my dad after 20 years. Marlin's tale of Gatsby Mansions on Long Island. Marriage in Mexico. Studio 54 in New York was a big hangout of mix. It wasn't my taste. A tottered-up disco club, or, as it appeared to me at the time, a room full of faggots in boxer shorts waving champagne bottles in your face. There were crowds around the block trying to get in. The little velvet rope saying you're in or out. I knew they were dealing dope around the back, which is why they all got busted, as if they weren't coining enough. But they were having a good time. They were just boys partying, basically. The weird thing is, the first time I met Patty Hansen was in Studio 54. John Phillips and I had run in there because Britt Eklund was chasing me. She had the hots for me, and hey Britt, I love you. You're a nice girl and everything like that. Sweet, shy, and unassuming. But my agenda's full, if you get my meaning. But she wouldn't let go. She was chasing me all over fucking town. So we thought, the one place to hide, Studio 54. It was the most unlikely place to find me. And it happened to be St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, which is Patty's birthday. The year was 1979. So we're hiding away, saying, Britt will never find us here. And Sean, one of Patty's mates, came over and said, It's my friend's birthday today. I said, which one? And she pointed out this blonde beauty dancing with wild hair flying. Dom Perignon immediately. I sent over a bottle of champagne and just said hello. I didn't see her again for a while, 
but the vision stayed in my mind. Then in December it was my birthday, my thirty-sixth, for which in accordance with the craze of the moment, we repaired to the Roxy Roller Rink in New York for a party. Jane Rose had kept Patty on her radar all those months, having noticed apparently some spark that first night, and made sure Patty was invited. So I caught sight of Patty again, and she caught sight of me catching sight of her, and she left. And a few days later, I called her and we got together. I wrote in my notebook in January 1980, a few days after that. Incredibly, I've found a woman. A miracle. I've pussy at the snap of a finger, but I've met a woman. Unbelievably, she is the most beautiful, physically, specimen in the world. But that ain't it. It certainly helps, but it's her mind, her joy of life, and wonders. She thinks this battered junkie is the guy she loves. I'm over the moon and peeing in my pants. She loves soul music and reggae, in fact, everything. I make her tapes of music, which is almost as good as being with her. I send them like love letters. I'm kicking forty and besotted. I was amazed that she was willing to hang out with me, because I was hanging out with a bunch of guys and all we did was go up to the Bronx and Brooklyn to these bizarre West Indian places and record stores. Nothing of interest to supermodels. My friend Brad Klein was there. I think Larry Sessler, Freddie's son, was there. Gary Schultz, my minder, was there too. He was always known as Concord, a nickname derived from Monty Python. Brave, brave Concord. You shall not have died in vain. I'm not quite dead, sir, etc. Jimmy Callaghan, my muscle for many years, Max Romeo, reggae star, and a few other cats. Nice to meet you, nice to know you. You want to hang out with this bunch of assholes? Up to you, you know. But she was there every day. And I know something's happening. But how it happens, and when and who pulls the spring is another thing. That's how we hung for days and days. I never put the hammer on hard. I didn't make a move. I could never put the make on. I could just never find the right line, or one that hadn't been used before. I just never had that thing with women. I would do it silently, very Charlie Chaplin. The scratch, the look, the body language. Get my drift? Now it's up to you. Hey, baby, is just not my come on. I've got to lay back and see the tension build to a point where something's got to happen. And if they can hang through that tension, then we're okay. They call it the reverse molecular version, the RMV, as it's known. Finally, after an astonishing number of days, she lay down on the bed and said, Come on. At the time I was living with Lil...